Hello and welcome to the Last Wicket Podcast. I'm your host Benny and thank you for tuning in. This week, my co-host Mike had an opportunity to chat with sports biomechanist Stuart Naylor to break down his study on the relationship between hitting techniques and ball carry distance in cricket. They talk about the evolution of biomechanics in cricket, key parameters in assessing ball carry distance, differences between men's and women's cricket concerning biomechanics, how this can complement technical coaching, and much, much more. Do check out links in the show notes to Stuart's YouTube channel, his Science of Cricket lecture series, his Expert in Sport podcast, and research articles on cricket. Before that, take a listen for what he had to say on the Last Cricket podcast. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us at The Last Wicket. Um, welcome. And, uh, you know, I wanted to start with you, obviously, uh, uh, understand how you got yourself into sports uh, biomechanist, uh, the, the career. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we've had a chance to talk to other people like yourself. Uh, but I know everybody's path is a little bit different. So uh, curious how you got started. Yeah, thank you. And, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, Good question. So really my background, well, that's probably all of our backgrounds, but I'm you know, really passionate about sport. Um, at school as a youngster, I was good at maths and physics, but never really very passionate about them. Um, I'm a keen sportsman. So, you know, until I was about 18, I used to compete internationally at judo as a junior and um, oh, wow. martial arts, then became, you know, a national level netball umpire. Um, my separate story there, but yeah, my kind of parents were in a netball club back home um, and got involved in that alongside the judo training. So basically went to university um, here at Loughborough, actually, um, studying sport and exercise science, you know, interested in sport and science, probably really good at maths and physics, but didn't really enjoy them. I always remember being in a seminar session in you know my second year biomechanics module and suddenly realizing that I was doing the exact same problem that I'd hated at school. But instead of a car pulling a trailer up a hill, it was a cyclist going up a mountain in the Tour de France. And just that slight change in applying the same mechanics, but to sport instead of any other aspect of life meant I was then really interested in it. And yeah, the kind of same person teaching those sessions ended up being my supervisor for my final year project ended up supervising my PhD and kind of went on from there. But yeah, really, it's just that combination of mechanics plus sport that managed to be that intersection of things I'm hopefully a little bit good at with things that I was really passionate about and things I enjoy. That's that's fascinating. Um, and, and it's really interesting. What I've noticed is a lot of people who are into sports research are often into multiple sports because there are things that you can learn from, you know, different sports. So, you know, your main sport might be cricket, might be soccer, but um, just there are things from other sports that you can pick up. So it's it's pretty interesting that you, you were into netball, judo, uh, sort of a good variety there. Um, the one thing I was mentioning before was, you know, we've had a chance to talk to researchers like yourself. Uh, so, for example, we talked to Habib Nurbai, who... Um, is based out of South Africa and has done research on the biomechanics of the backlift, for example. Um, what I haven't seen too much, and maybe just you know me not being aware, 
um, is research on similar fronts in the subcontinent because, you know, obviously cricket is so big there. So I'm curious, have you had a chance to interact with people in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka who are, you know, researching on similar topics or, or do you feel they're, you know, those countries are a little behind on this? Um, good question. Yeah, I think on the first bit around, you know, different sports, different backgrounds, I normally say that I'm a biomechanist that's had to learn cricket rather than a cricketer that's had to learn biomechanics. So, yeah, we can maybe get onto it in a bit. But, yeah, I definitely kind of, you know, went through the biomechanics education first and then ended up through various opportunities coming up, getting involved in different projects in cricket and getting into it that way. Um, but in terms of different nationalities, there's definitely research, you know, around the world. I'm familiar with a lot of Habib's um, work in, you know, as you said, the backlift, especially in batting. Um a lot of the work has been in the UK with you know, Loughborough has done a lot of work. There's a lot in Australia through um, things like the University of Western Australia. I know there is research in South Africa. Places like India are doing a lot more now, um, especially, you know, academic conferences and things. It's quite common that we will bump into um, people, you know, in India doing similar research. I think, a lot of it is sometimes replication work, which is really, really important in science. But we'll often see that research done out of, say, England or Australia then gets replicated elsewhere in the world. And it's actually really useful to know whether those same findings are found in kind of not only different participant characteristics, different, you know, kind of ethnic characteristics, etc., but also around the different coaching backgrounds. So it's not just that people of an Indian descent may have different characteristics to people of an English descent. When you think of what we're specifically interested in, they've been coached a different way, potentially their whole life. They've come through different academy systems, different club systems, etc. So it's actually really useful to know whether they replicate. Um, but yeah, on that note, there probably is potential for a big multinational study looking at a lot of these things, but then the question always becomes, you know, who's going to fund it? Is it the ICC right. funding some big thing and getting academics from all over the world to look at it? Or if the funding comes from something like the national governing body, then it will typically be done within that country. So it maybe comes down to which governing bodies are funding the research where a lot of the work done here in Loughborough is funded at least partly um, by the ECB. I know likewise things in Australia will be funded by either kind of Cricket Australia or Australian Institute of Sport, etc. Um, so I think there's a lot of factors involved. But yeah, it is definitely happening all around the world, but there are still those kind of same countries that are maybe being a bit more predominant. Makes sense, makes sense. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating point that you made about, you know, the different backgrounds, different ways of learning, as well as just um, ethnicities playing a part. Because I think in, in running, for example, we see um, uh, Jamaicans being fantastic sprinters, while, you know, people from Africa, like uh, Kenyans in particular, uh, are, are great long distance runners. So it, there's, you know, even though uh, there are similarities in, in some of those techniques and things like that, there's uh, also differences in just the way their bodies are built and, and all that contributes to sort of the, the reason why certain countries have certain strengths. Um, but let's uh, get into your topic of research. So 
the the piece that we wanted to focus on today was the relationship between the hitting technique and ball carry distance in cricket. Um, so why did this topic specifically, um, you know, come up? How did you choose on that? And then how did you go about it? Um, obviously, I read the summary a little bit, but uh, for you, for our listeners, if you can dive in. So this area of work really started with a PhD by um, a close friend of mine, Chris Peplow. So it was funded by the ECB at Loughborough University. So it was supervised by Professor Mark King, who supervises a lot of the Loughborough-based cricket research. Um, really, I was doing a similar PhD in another area of biomechanics at the same time, um, alongside Chris and others. And I then got involved in helping out with that research. Afterwards, Chris is now working kind of in sports technology, but outside of academia. So I've kind of picked up a lot of that research and then ran with it, trying to continue and see what else we can find out. But really with his funding, I think it was quite interesting early on where every time England lost, then the topic of his PhD would change because it's actually, we need to know how to bat against spin. And then you know, England would then lose something a week later. And it's no, we need to know how to bat against the short ball. We need to know how to do this, how to do that. And the topic that was eventually settled on was how do you basically power hitting? How do you hit the ball for six? How do you maximize um, boundary scoring? Um, and I can't remember kind of exactly what that discussion was that led to that being the focus, but it actually ended up being almost the perfect storm of different factors where you had the explosion of shorter forms of cricket um, at around that time. You had almost no previous research having been done in the area, whereas you've got you know, 10, 20 years of research all around the world, as we were discussing earlier, in bowling, especially fast bowling, in how do you bowl as fast as possible. When it came to power hitting, there was almost nothing um, so there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, but it was also really almost optimal for us in that there's a clear outcome measure for us to try and optimise. In most of batting, we could probably all look at, you know, the exact same, or we could all look at two different shots on video and we might all disagree about which one was the best shot, which then makes it really, really difficult for us to biomechanically measure the technique and say, well, which technique was better than the other one? If we can't even decide which shot was best, then how do we know which of the two techniques was better that achieved that outcome? Whereas for power hitting, we were able to really simply break it down into how far did the ball go and then work backwards from there to say what factors contribute to how far the ball goes and then what factors contribute to those factors, what causes those, and you've got almost a load of diagram, a load of arrows flying around a screen until at some point you end up with the technique of the person actually holding the bat. So it might be um, the distance the ball travels is determined by the speed you hit the ball at and the angle you hit the ball at. And kind of they're the only two things really that will determine the distance. You then get, well, okay, focus on the angle the ball goes at. Well, that's largely determined by the angle of the bat when you hit the ball. So what factors determine that? And you get into technique in that way. Or if you're talking about how fast the ball is traveling when it leaves the bat, that's probably caused by a combination of bat speed and whereabouts on the bat you hit the ball. So we ended up doing a study. One of the first things we did 
was trying to quantify the sweet spot on the bat and basically develop a method that meant we could quantify whereabouts on the bat the ball was hit every trial that we then measured. And we could almost account for that by saying, yeah, the technique was perfect, but it was hit towards the edge of the bat. That's why we got a bad outcome. Or the technique wasn't that great, but it was hit in the middle. And that's why we're seeing a better outcome from that shot than the other. Whereas then most of the research, which is probably the bit you want to talk about really, was on that last bit of how do you actually swing the bat fast? So if we assume they can actually time it well, what is it about your technique that can make you swing the bat faster and therefore hit the ball further? And that really just became quite a nice story or a nice kind of series of studies where instead of evaluating 20 different factors, you can literally say this technique leads to this bat speed, which then leads to this ball speed, which leads to this kind of distance traveled by the ball and therefore clearing the boundary. So it really simplified it and turned this big mess of hundreds of different factors involved in batting into something that we could actually start to break down and quantify a bit more. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because a lot of research that I've read is often based on trying to establish sort of correlation, causations, things like that. But it, it's fascinating because this is very quantifiable. Like, as you said, you started with the distance the ball travels. So it's a little bit different in that regard. So, um, yeah, definitely makes sense that, you know, you were able to make it something more co uh, quantitative, more, you know, objective rather than it being subjective, as you were saying, which is the better looking shot or which is the better shot, something like that. Um, uh, but speaking of, um, yeah, so I think the other piece that st uh, stood out to me was the fact that you talked about the sweet spot. So um, that's the first thing I was thinking as I, you know, came across your topic of research. And I was thinking, well, every bat is different. Uh, you know, the length of the bat might be slightly different. Some people use like a short handle, things like that. So there's all these variations that come into play. Um, so you already looked at all of that so that you can, you know, sort of, sort of normalize that before looking at, uh, you know, coming up with, with the analysis. It, that, uh, is that a fair, fair way to put it? Yeah, I think partly. So, yeah, it definitely is. We probably didn't go into all of the lengths that you've kind of just said in that a lot of the things you've just measured or just mentioned were, fa were factors that were almost left unexplained where when we do then test, you know, a big cohort of um, batters, it's almost like, well, we've, we've been able to explain a certain percentage of performance based on just technique. However, that's without measuring things like, you know, some of those back characteristics in that each player, this is almost a separate debate, but each player used their own bat, which is a big limitation in that almost all scientific studies, you want to control everything except for the one thing you're interested in. If we're interested in technique, you know, you're, science 101 that you'll learn at you know school or university will tell you keep everything else the same only change the technique but that's not actually possible because if you change someone's bat then you know someone swinging with a bat they've never used before is going to perform differently if um yeah i'm trying to think where i was going with that um, but you know it's even how long does it take to adapt even if we were interested in studying the effect of different bat design um you can't just give someone a heavier or a lighter or a longer or a shorter bat and study the effect of it 
because the thing we're actually interested in is how would you perform with that bat if you trained for six months with it and managed to optimize your technique for that bat, which we can't give someone 10 different bats and then figure out what's the best technique for you with each bat and which one is the best possible outcome. In reality, if you change your bat, you're going to use your current best technique just with the new bat, which might not be ideal. So there's a lot of things we haven't accounted for, but we did do, as you say, the separate study looking at, you know, across everyone's own bat, how does impact location on the bat face affect various different outcomes? And in terms of speed, it's probably as you'd expect, and there's a sweet spot somewhere on the bat. If it's too high or low, too far towards either outside edge, the speed's going to get worse. Um, so nothing too kind of surprising there. The bit that was more interesting to me was when we did the same analysis, but for shot direction. So there's actually a really interesting relationship where, again, it might sound obvious, but the impact location on the bat face can then cause the bat to twist and the ball to go off in an unintended direction. But the shape of that relationship changes as you move across the bat face. So you've kind of got, you know, across most of the bat face, the further away from the middle it is, the more that's going to cause the bat to twist and then the ball to go off in that direction. However, then when it starts to get closer to the edge, that then, because it's more of a glancing blow on the edge of the bat, that doesn't cause the bat to twist as much. And it then has, although you're not recommending edge the ball, um, it definitely has a different relationship. So whereas for speed, it was very clear and simple, for kind of direction, there was actually more of a complex relationship that we then needed to consider. But I think it's useful to know when we are then doing further studies, it's a bit like saying, you know, how do you bowl as fast as possible, but not actually thinking about where the ball lands. It's the same in batting. If we're saying, how do you hit the ball as far as possible, we still need to consider direction and make sure that it's actually accurate. A bit like considering timing. It's okay saying, this is how you optimize your swing. But if the margin for error is so small that you'll get it perfect one in a thousand shots and just miss the ball the other 999, that's not actually your best possible shot. Um, so yeah, there's kind of various different things we need to consider, but there's a bit of a theoretical piece to start with just to almost box that off, get it out of the way and say, okay, that's done. Now let's remove even again, trying to keep it simple, like we did by focusing on distance traveled by the ball, we basically said, let's remove the effect of all of those different bat characteristics as much as possible by using bat speed as our outcome. So it doesn't actually matter where you hit the ball, what effect it has, because we're just saying, how do you swing the bat as fast as possible? And then ignoring what happens afterwards. But using the previous study to say, we know that that does then correlate with various performance outcomes. That makes sense. Um, I, I guess a couple of things to further talk about within that is you mentioned timing, right? So that's another piece that I feel like varies by um, sort of the quality of the batter, um, where, you know, somebody who's playing probably county cricket in England or, you know, probably chasing the English national team they probably inbuilt have just a na better natural sense of timing compared to somebody playing club cricket or domestic cricket uh, at a lower level. Um, 
uh, was there how do you like manage that as well because both of those players could hit the ball um you know equally at an equal bat speed with equal speed or more or less equal you know um angle and and all of that but one might carry much further um so i, I guess there's how, how do you interpret that because that gets trickier because again the bat might be different the strength of the batter might be different so all of these factors come into play yeah i think it's it is interesting and it again it depends even to make it even more complex it's, what do you mean by timing <laughs> but there's you know you can look at almost who timed that individual shot the best but then you could be looking at kind of anticipation decision making how are they reading the bowler running towards them to figure out and almost anticipate what's going to happen so that they can time it better or there's a a lot of research in other sports, like even things like gymnastics for, you know, timing of when people release the bar to make sure they kind of, you know, they don't fly off in the wrong direction or land back on the bar. Um, but there's a lot of work around what is good timing. And actually, a lot of the time we find that expert performers don't necessarily just have better timing. They've found a movement solution that makes that less important. So they're almost using a technique where they don't have to time it as well. So imagine, again, just a bit of a ridiculous example, but if you're swinging across the ball, it's almost like, you know, you've got to time it perfectly or the bat won't be in the same place as the ball at the right time. Whereas if the bat is moving along the line of kind of the ball coming towards you, if you're slightly early or late, you might not have the desired outcome, but the ball, you know, the bat would still contact with the ball. Um, right. Is that kind of, if you extrapolate that into the whole technique, you can almost say, well, what happens if they mistime this slightly? And then you can, there's almost an argument that the best possible technique is the one that maximizes the likelihood of success. However, you define, so instead of this is the one that hits the ball furthest, it would be this is the one that produces a six, the greatest percentage of the time regardless of how big it is or this is the one that almost maximizes the ratio of you know what you'd class to be a successful versus unsuccessful shot or something but again with the idea of trying to keep it as simple as possible what we did was make a decision to analyze everybody's best shot and the best shot only so rather than assessing them as an individual player and their timing we're basically saying that we're studying the relationship between technique and the performance outcome. And so we're taking their best shot and we're just looking at what technique they used and then comparing a range of different players to say, if we test 20 players, which we did from, so 20 male players in this instance, ranging from club, from club players, and so some of my friends were participants in the study, ranging up to senior England internationals at the time, when you take each of their best shot where we're assuming they have timed it correctly, what is it that's different between those groups of players in terms of their technique? Um, what is it that yeah, the senior England internationals are doing differently to the club players and so on? That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, the other piece I want to just talk about is I read briefly about elbow extension and angular separation. Uh, so yeah, could you talk about that a little bit? And how yeah, that sure. Goes? So yeah, 
follows on perfectly from where I just finished the last answer. Um, it's almost like you've done your research and planned this. <laughs> um, so, yeah, basically, from the previous study I mentioned where we looked at trying to predict bat speed from various technique parameters, we basically get those 20 batters into, or it would be into a motion capture lab. However, we actually took the cameras to the ECB's National Performance Centre on campus. So basically in an indoor cricket centre with kind of motion capture cameras all around, which is a bit like if you've ever seen behind the scenes of how they make something like FIFA, the video game, or how they make Avatar or any kind of movie where you've probably seen someone in black clothing with dot, kind of reflective dots stuck to them and the cameras are tracking it. It's that same technology that we have those markers placed on anatomical bony landmarks on the batters. The 20 players then, you know, have however many shots to try and hit the ball as far as they can back over a bowling machine in this instance for six. We then run the stats to say, can we predict bat speed from technique? And then we found three kind of key important factors that came out across the whole group. The first one's the, the one that explained the most variation in performance between players was something called X factor, which comes from golf. If you imagine drawing a line through your shoulders, so from left shoulder to right shoulder, and then another line through your hips from left hip to right hip. If you look at that from above, those two lines are probably on top of each other. Whereas as you then go through your backswing, if your shoulders rotate further than your hips, those two lines will start to separate and it makes a bit of an X. That's where this term X factor comes from in golf research. And it's the idea that the more you, rather than just rotating your entire body together, it's kind of rotating your shoulders even further back than your hips. So that separation between thorax and pelvis or between shoulder and hips. And really we found the bigger that X or the more you can separate, then the bigger the bat speed that people were then able to generate. The second most important parameter for us was lead elbow extension. So between, well, yeah, basically during the downswing, um, so from the top of the backswing through to ball impact, how much did their front elbow extend? Um, the more they extended that elbow, the more they were then able to generate um, bat speed. And then the third and final parameter was wrist uncocking. Um, which again, kind of cocking and uncocking of the wrist came from other sports. But really, you've got almost the important factor here for me, or the interesting bit, was that it followed a sequence from the center of the body towards the outside of the body. So the most important aspect was around, you know, hip and shoulder separation and rotation. Then the second most important was that lead elbow extension. And then the third was the wrist. So it's almost following that sequence through the body where actually starting with the central rotations was key and not just trying to generate everything with the arms. Um, but they were our kind of most important factors that we found across that cohort. That makes sense. Yeah. Now that you explain the X factor that you mentioned, it makes a lot more sense. When I was reading the article, it, I was, I was a little lost, uh, but that's, that's fascinating. So yeah, it's one that's really, it's one that's really easy to explain with videos where normally, you know, if I'm, doing a lecture or presentation, I'd have videos of skeletons hitting cricket balls with kind of lines drawn through them. <laughs> it's 
you see this X, now it's getting bigger, now it's getting smaller again. When you're reading something that just talks about X factor, like, what's that? I thought that was a singing competition. Um, <laughs> I might just be in the UK, um, but anyway. Yeah, no, makes sense. Makes, I think the wrist uncocking elbow extension are things that um, are more commonly talked about. Again, this is people who, you know, listen to cricket commentary, listen to experts talk about, we've heard these terminologies. So that did not surprise me as much. The angular separation definitely, or the X factor um, that you referred to from golf research is definitely something that's, um, that I w that was new to me. Um, and the fact that, you know, the, the line by made by your shoulders mm -hmm. needs to go further back compared to your, compared to the line made by your waist. Um, so that's, that's really fascinating. Um, I kind of take a different uh, angle on this. So, you know, in my limited understanding, my my thought is biomechanics work a little bit different for men versus women. Um, I've read articles on fast bowling in particular, where women have slightly different uh, way they generate pace. So considering this research was based on, you know, 20 men of, of various, um, you know, batting abilities, um, how do you think this can be translated to women matters um, or what else would you need to do from a research perspective, from a trial perspective to come up with that list that that's more applicable to them? Hmm. This is one of my favorite things to talk about um, or one of my probably favorite things maybe to think about. I don't know whether it's interesting to talk about. Um, you can be the judge of that. Um, but I find this really, really fascinating just because there are so many interrelated factors that can't possibly be separated from each other. So we normally talk about technique being influenced by kind of three main things of the person, the environment, and the task that you're asking them to perform. But when we started thinking about a comparison of power hitting in male and female cricket, you could almost you know write down a list of 20 or 30 different things that differ between those two activities. And it's not the surface level of your question is how does you know the female body and male body maybe differ or result in different optimal technique or it's mainly it seems like it's about the person which it probably is but the more you start to think about it the actual task itself is different so the batter is holding a bat that is a different size and different mass they're swinging to meet a ball that's a different size and mass traveling at a different speed from a player that will be showing different cues during the run-up. The task is then to clear a boundary that's a different length with, you know, by clearing fielders who probably have different speed, different characteristics. Um, so all of that is different on its own. Then even when you start to think about just the actual player, you know, you've got, strength characteristics you've got the kind of body and limb length characteristics um you've got things like you know the training history of the player so have the male players been trained in performing a specific power hitting technique whereas the females haven't what level of training what level of strength and conditioning have they had and all of these things almost interrelate with each other, where it's almost impossible to say what's the, which one is causing it or what's the effect of one of them without all of the others. And even if you think about it, even almost from a sociological and not necessarily biomechanical perspective, 
the moment you coach a male and a female athlete differently, either because of any of the things we've just mentioned that are real or any perceived differences in them that might not actually be real differences, it then becomes impossible to separate the influence of those things from the coaching. So if you said, you know, I'm going to coach a female athlete differently to a male because of a real or perceived difference in strength, we then kind of can't separate the effect of strength versus the effect of the coaching because they're all intertwined. And even that's without talking about, you know, financial and resource um, constraints and everything else. But um, yeah, basically we found this really interesting. So it is something we've actually done some research on. We took, I think, 15 of the, let me go this right. So it's definitely comparing 15 male and 15 female batters. So the male, I believe, are 10 of the better batters from the previous study. So kind of from county to, I think it's maybe England under 19 through to senior England players. So everyone in the England pathway from the previous study. So the better half of those players. We then added another five players from the MCCU University Academy um, here at Loughborough. So you've got 15 players ranging from University Academy to senior international. We then collected 15 female players' data of a similar ability, so university and senior internationals. We've since recorded more female international players and junior internationals, but they kind of weren't involved in that first study. And we just did a simple comparison to say what differs in technique between the male and female batters. And there were kind of other differences, but by far the biggest thing that came out. So both the most common differences, the biggest differences, the most significant differences, all related to the elbows and especially the lead elbow that we mentioned before, where if you almost view it as the male player's performing a specific power hitting technique that does look a bit like a golf swing. So they're extending that front elbow as they come through the downswing. The female players were using more of a check drive where that front elbow is kind of is bent at the top of the backswing and it then almost remains flexed throughout the swing. So it's almost kind of shoulder dominant rather than actually extending that wrist. Um, and we even found, I think roughly half of the females were actually flexing their elbow further during the downswing, so they weren't extending it at all. It wasn't just that the men were extending it more, like so there were kind of senior international female players that weren't getting any elbow extension at all, which basically suggested to us that rather than differences in technique, they were actually just using different strokes, different shot types. Um, it was almost like they're using a different solution to try and solve their task, which then again leads into the interesting or more interesting question of, well, how should a female batter swing? Should they use the same technique as the men or have they already optimized to what works best for them? And that's where we're hopefully doing more research and we don't know the answers yet, but it's things like we've seen from other sports. If you take a baseball player and give them a heavier bat, just kind of, again, without them adapting to it. But if you just give them a heavier bat on that day, they'll change their swing in a way that looks more like the way the female cricket players were swinging with that flexed elbow. 
or we've seen uh, kind of lower level golfers, we see the same differences as in cricket, whereas in professional golfers, those differences have disappeared. So there's kind of, there seems to be something around, well, maybe at a higher level, the female batters can play the way the men do, but then maybe it's influenced by bat mass. So maybe it's bat characteristic limited or strength characteristic limited. But then the other theory is, well, maybe, again, talking about margin for error, if the female boundary is shorter, maybe they don't need, if they're already clearing the boundary, there's no incentive for them to hit the ball even further. So as long as they're actually capable of hitting a six with that technique, maybe that one is actually more consistent or less risky. Um, you know, they can get a more consistent impact near the sweet spot with their technique. So there's no need for them to switch to the riskier power hitting technique. And kind of all of these are just ideas, but I think just to say that there are differences at the elbow, we don't yet know almost what should be recommended, but it's a really interesting area that we're doing further research into. Yeah, that, that's that's really fascinating. Um, you know, I, I thought about like the shorter boundary uh, before you started explaining that, but I had not thought about the bat, uh, the weight of the bat. And I feel like that, you know, I guess if you look at it from a percentage of the weight of the batter to the bat or ratio or something like that, I'm sure there's, uh, there's yeah. something. If you look, there. there's no, or there's very little out there in terms of how the characteristics of female bats were developed. You know, it's not, even if you did, well, I don't think this has been done, but even if you did just say, you know, I'm making these numbers up, but if you said you're 80% of the weight of a male batter or you're 80% of the strength of a male counterpart or however you did it, so therefore the bat is going to be 80% of the weight of a male bat. Even if you did it like that, is that per is that ideal? Is it not kind of what is the ideal combination of you know length, mass, different characteristics of that bat for that player? Or even and this isn't just about female, this is about any player, but how do the bat characteristics interact with their technique? So that instead of looking at it the way we probably do in cricket, of how do you maximize how do you maximize your technique for that bat when you look at things like golf where they have a lot of club fitting there's a lot of almost monitoring someone's technique and then fitting a club to them so how do you say this is the technique you use you've developed it over years and years of practice we're not going to try and change it however we think we can tailor a bat to your technique that you're using so i think there's a lot of interesting research opportunity there at the intersection of almost human biomechanics and engineering or equipment design and how it all feeds in together. That makes sense. And I think this translates really well to our to my next question, which is how do we take this? And obviously some of it is, you know, research that is still in progress, but for whatever we've gathered, like for for uh, the men we've gathered, you know, some of the key body movements that lead to better hitting uh how does that translate to coaches and players training methods um you know is there a way i know you mentioned ecb was part of the reason that this research happened so i guess is there a reason or is there a communication with let's say level three level four coaches at the ecb where you share this on a regular basis sit with them anything like that or um 
yeah, really influencing how the, you know, we change the outcome for the next set of players. Yeah, I think that's probably the most important question, which is always useful to kind of start with that in mind when you actually do the research. Um, it's something I'm really passionate about. So I'm, I guess, a big believer in trying to bridge the gap between research and practice. Um, and even, I don't know, I'm really passionate about trying to communicate science or communicate biomechanics to the world, which, I don't know, I guess this podcast is part of that. Um, but, you know, there are things I've done, um, even, you know, for example, I hosted during lockdown a sports biomechanics lecture series on YouTube um, with, I think, some almost 30 um, biomechanics lectures, which some of them are on cricket. So I did one on cricket batting. Um, Paul Felton did one on cricket bowling mechanics. I then also later on did a series on the science of cricket on YouTube that's got kind of various different people. Again, even on our podcast for Loughborough University called Experts in Sport podcast, we've had a few cricket um, episodes. But I think in terms of the outreach in that sense, I think we maybe maybe aren't as good as we could be, but compared to a lot of academics, we probably do quite well. I think the bit you mentioned about going directly to coaches is the bit where we could improve further. As you say, the research, some of it, not all of it, is funded by or part funded by the ECB, and we do have lines of communication with them and kind of share those findings. Um, probably compared to bowling, we maybe could do more to communicate it, but I think for fast bowling in particular, there's almost 20 years of research here between Loughborough and the ECB built up over time. Um, and that is really well integrated into the kind of level three, level four coaching pathways. Um, in terms of, I guess, coaching implications, maybe for batting, one of the key points is that we maybe don't know what we need to communicate yet. And it's trying to, I think the next steps for me are around tailoring the research to answer some of those questions. So what should female batters be doing um, for the male batters rather than on a group level saying, this is how England players differ from club players. How can we take any one individual and figure out what the best technique is for them? Or even is there such a thing as a best technique for them? Is it about giving them certain feedback and allowing them to explore their own environment and their own solutions? So is it, are we better saying, this is how you should swing a bat? Or are we better creating an environment where we can give feedback on either bat speed, ball speed, ball angle, whatever, and allowing someone to play around with their own technique to try and see what effect it has on those and find their own movement solutions, especially given what we know about, say, male and female batters choosing at the elite level to use different solutions. Should we therefore be encouraging that rather than trying to force them into a kind of one-size-fits-all approach? Um, but the other thing that came to mind when you were asking that question was around methods of training. And that's maybe the third area that we've done a lot of research in really is around how do you bat differently against a bowler or a bowling machine? Is a bowling machine an effective way of training these techniques that we've talked about? And really we looked at it through a lens of decision-making, anticipation, information, processing, etc. And basically made the assumption that with a bowler, you've got the maximum possible availability of information pre-release of the ball. With a bowling machine, there's nothing before the ball is released. 
as a kind of intermediate halfway between roughly we went with a sidearm kind of thrower so you know the kind of dog ball thrower kind of yeah. thing that's often used um so we kind of compared those three conditions to see how players bat when power hitting against each of the three and again a bit like the sequencing of center of the body outwards in importance that we mentioned early on this study got really interesting for me when we saw the results in that if you start with those three factors of kind of separation elbow and wrist there were other differences and it wasn't quite this clear cut but to really simplify it we saw the biggest x factor or the biggest separation between shoulders and hips against a bowler when there was the most visual information available possible the intermediate kind of sidearm thrower condition had the most elbow extension or seemed to be the most elbow dominant whereas then against the bowling machine there was more wrist action than the other two and that's a massive simplification of the results but it does seem that there's almost a tendency that the more visual information that's available the more people were able to start the movement early and make use of that full sequence of center of the body outwards whereas by removing some of that visual information say by use of a bowling machine you're almost having to react later and unless well the caveat here is sometimes when you know exactly where the bowling machine is going to pitch the ball you get the opposite effect where they start the movement even earlier sometimes they start the movement before the ball's even been released because they know exactly where it's going to go um, right. but if it is varied you're having to wait longer and so it therefore becomes more kind of what we call distally dominant but dominated by the kind of end points of that action rather than that full sequence through the body so i think it's not to say bowling machine bad bowler good and there are lots of reasons why you can't just train against a bowler all the time but i think it's around having some awareness of what the purpose of that training intervention is and whether the method you're training against replicates that whether that's anticipatory stuff or whether it's purely technique based but just saying it might be for some aspects of technique it's great for others it might not be and just being aware of that but again i think we've got a long way to go before we can say you know we're having real tangible impact on coaching practice around the world but i think we're now at a point where we started really theoretical by just studying the effect of impact locations on the bat and sweet spots and things we've then moved into the actual people but just said on a group level what do good players do differently to less good players what do males do differently to females etc we're now trying to move into that next stage around how do we actually you know what effect do different coaching practices have and on an individual basis how can we look at kind of bespoke recommendations or training practice for the individuals so hopefully once those kind of things progress there'll then be more that can be communicated um to coaches to players or kind of I guess anyone in the wider cricketing world. Right. And and I think the challenge of all of this is, you know, that the communication piece like often you you can gather really good research but to be able to translate it to somebody who's, you know, always been on the field and doesn't understand x coordinates and, and the x factor and, and things like that. 
um, and making sure they have an open ear, you know, just getting the support that, um, that you know, that we can do pull through that final frontier so that we can actually see some change. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely fascinating. Um, uh, Stuart, thank you so much for such an enlightening conversation. Really, really uh, fun listening to all the various things that are happening in the world of research. Also the future, you know, how we influence training methods, bring about actual changes to players' techniques, which um, hopefully we'll start seeing sooner rather than later. And um, yeah, if uh, you know, would love to have you back on all the other topics that you've uh, researched. I had a chance to go through your YouTube and found some really fascinating topics like fast bowling and lumbar support, but we'll, we'll leave that for another time. Uh, but thanks again for jumping on and um, really a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.